You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. I hope you guys are all uh, bracing for the heat wave next week. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. It's been negative 10 at night, and then you jump to like 30 during the day. That's 40 degrees difference. I mean, that's like a huge deal. And so uh, we'll all have our shorts on next week, and true Wisconsinites, looking forward to that. If you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 3. We're beginning uh, chapter 3 this week, and... I'm really excited about where we are going. A lot of times in our lives, we are called to do hard things, and hard things just um, come to us, and as a result, we persevere. And the reason why we persevere is because we believe that it's worth it. And you can think of hundreds of examples of this, But just think about Madison and, like, the weather we've been having. Like, Kim frequently turns to me right about this time of year, and it's like, why do we live here again? You know? You know, when when there was two feet of snow in our driveway apron, and, uh, you know, I paid the the, the truck that was servicing the house next door 20 bucks to come do ours. It's just like, this is too much, you know? Why do, we, why do we persevere in Madison winters like this? Polar vortexes. You can live somewhere else. Because well, it's worth it. I love Madison. I don't want to live anywhere else. I think Madison is a great city. I think it's one of the nation's best kept secrets. We persevere this weather because we believe it's worth it. Think about a lot of you in the room have probably run a marathon And if you run a marathon, there are times when it feels overwhelmingly challenging, especially on those last few weeks when your schedule says you're supposed to run 20 miles on a Saturday two weeks before your race. And that's really, really hard. But why do you do it? Well, because you believe that it's worth it. We believe that it's worth it. That Me crossing that finish line for whatever intrinsic motivation I have, when I feel that feeling— and that, that sense of accomplishment, I'm going to endure this pain on the 20-mile run because I believe it's worth it. That goal that I have is worth it. A lot of the women in the room have given birth. It's hard, right? From what I understand, it's hard. We have, we have a, a really dear friend, and she told us, uh, in, in painful detail how when she was giving birth for the first time, she's just like screaming to her husband and these nurses, I can't do this. I can't do this. Like just like freaking out. And some of you have, have had that experience. Um, she persevered. They have a beautiful girl. Four girls, in fact. She persevered. Why? Because it's worth it. The kids are worth it. Having a baby's worth it. Consider consider our eating. A lot of us are in the process of maybe trying to lose weight, and you impose on yourself a strict diet, and that's not comfortable at all. 
when, when you want to eat cake and ice cream, but you know you're supposed to be eating carrots, it's like, which do I want to pick? It's like, what the heck? This is horrible. Like saying no to that impulse to eat food that, that we know we shouldn't and isn't good for us, but it tastes so good in the short term. Why do we persevere and eat the carrots? Because we believe that it's worth it. We believe that it's worth it. We believe that the short-term uncomfortable is worth the long-term gain. And that's what the author of Hebrews, if you take like a, if you zoom out on the book of Hebrews, that's really what he's getting at over and over again in lots of different ways. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Jesus is worth it. Jesus is better. And this morning, uh, in, in six verses in chapter three, he, he really kind of drills down on this. He really hones in on this. And some of the discussion this morning is a little more technical. It's a little harder to understand. Uh, scholars say that the Greek in Hebrew is some of the most challenging Greek to translate into English in all of the New Testament. So we're going to unpack this with maybe a little more explanation heavy this morning. Um, but let's, let's, let's fix our, our minds on this text. And I just want you to just see, I want you to understand and embrace what the author is trying to do this morning. He's trying to, imp- he's pleading with these people to not give up because it's worth it. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. I'm just going to read the text, and then we'll just walk through it and break it down. Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us this morning to see your word with eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive, soften our hearts. We ask for your help this morning that we would um, leave here more fueled and fed uh, to glorify you this coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at the first word in verse 1. Therefore. The word therefore always connects to what was previously written, right? So what was previously written? Look at it in your Bible in chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered, so Jesus here, for because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Tempted. So therefore, the author wants them to 
do something, to remember something, to think something. So verse 18 of chapter 2, he's able to help you. He's able to help you in the struggle to keep believing and trusting that Jesus is worth it. And if he's able to help, what should we do? He's able to help you. Therefore, here's something I want you to do is what he's saying in verse 1. And, 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 and verse 1 answers that question. What should we do? What should we believe? What should we think? Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, if Jesus has suffered as we have and is able to help me, therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So remember what he's done here in these first few words. They're not just throwaway words. Look at the words. He's calling them to remember their identity. That's the first thing. Remember who you are. Look at how he addresses them. Therefore, holy, he says, you guys are holy. You're set apart. You're made new. You're seen different because of the gospel. Because of propitiation, the removal of God's wrath from you for your sin, like we talked about last week, and being united to Jesus by faith, this is how God sees you. He sees you as holy. That's who you are. It doesn't matter how you feel. God has just declared it. That's who you are. So believe it. And, and he calls them brothers and the implication sisters. What does that mean? It means your identity is one who is a child of the king. You are a son and daughter. Jesus is your big brother in this context. God is your father. We are in a family. Family language there for a reason. That's your identity. This is who you are. And then what else does he say? He says, you have who share in a heavenly calling. What does that mean? It means you're destined because of your identity to spend eternity with God. So he's saying first, don't forget your identity. Don't forget who you are. This is who you are. And, and, and once that's settled, there's another verb in verse 1. Look for it. There's another verb. What is it? It's an imperative. So if this is true, if your identity is true, what do you want me to do? What's the verb? What's the action? What's the imperative? Consider. See it there? Consider. Now, this is a translation from Greek into English. And so there's other translations from the ESV. We use the ESV. I like the NIV a lot more for this verse. It's much more illustrative and powerful. The NIV says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on. Fix your thoughts on. So consider is just like, eh, I'm considering something. I'm considering whether to buy a house or not. That's how we kind of use the word consider. But it's much more powerful than that. The, the idea is, Fix your thoughts on. This implies continuous reflection on Jesus. Like when you first started dating someone and you're fixing your thoughts on that person. It, you can't shut it off even if you tried. Like what are, they, what are they doing? What are they thinking? What are they wanting? Where are they going in life? And, and the author of Hebrews is saying it should be like that with Jesus. What is Jesus like? What does he do? Where is he going? Where is he taking me? What's he all about? How can I please him? It's like this continuous mental observation. Continuous mental observation. 
if this was important in this context, how much more is this important in our context where there is millions of things every day calling out to us saying, fix your attention on, on me. Fix your attention on this. This is what you should be thinking about. Like, it's a billion-dollar industry, the attention economy. We've talked about it before. People coming at you to, 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 to like, convince you to fix your attention on them. And the author of Hebrews, and I got 35 minutes this morning to try to convince you otherwise. The author of Hebrews is saying, for the sake of their perseverance and ours, make Jesus your continuous mental observation. Because if you don't, you might not finish well. Jesus has a very powerful parable. It's called the parable of the sower. And he talks about how He's just painting a, a picture. He's giving an illustration that the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out and sows seed. He puts seed in the ground all over the place, just casts it out. And a lot of that seed doesn't grow up to be a fruitful plant. One type of seed, he says, the reason why it doesn't grow and bear fruit is because it's fixated on the cares of the world. It's fixated on the cares of the world, like things like money and other things like that. What's our continuous mental observation? What, 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 what's, the, what's, the, what's on the billboard of our minds as we drive down the highway of life? The author of Hebrews is pleading with these people for the sake of their per per perseverance to not lose sight of Jesus. Don't forget about Jesus. So thus far, he's commending to them then, to us now, to fix our minds on Jesus. Let's keep reading. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. He's the apostle and the high priest of our confession, of what we say we believe. Verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as, so Jesus is, is, is like Moses in a sense, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So let me remind you about who these original people are. Because if we don't understand that, what, what the author of Hebrews here is talking about might be just like, what? Because at face value, it's kind of like, what is he talking about? Why is he bringing in Moses, builders of houses, and what's, what's going on here? Well, let's talk about Moses. He brings Old Testament Moses into his reasoning, into his trying to persuade these people, to convince these people. He brings Moses in for why they should keep going for a reason. And we have to remember, these are mainly Jewish people who have converted to Christianity. Okay? And at this time in history, 
scholars suggest probably about 60 AD. Nero was probably the emperor at this time, and he was really, really hard on Christians, not as hard on Jewish people. At this time in history, it was easier for some to think, man, I decided to follow Jesus, but it's hard. Man, why don't we just go back to being Jewish? Because that's easier. Makes sense, right? And that's why the author brings Moses into their vision here. Okay? They're thinking, man, it'd be easier to go back to the Moses team. But the author's saying, don't do it. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Moses. Like, like Moses is the head coach of the old team, and the old team was good. The old team served its purpose. But there's an even better head coach, and it's this new team, the Jesus team. Old head coach was really good. New head coach, even better. So stick with him. But here's a question I want you guys to understand. Um, Why did they revere Moses so much? Why did they revere Moses so much? And we're probably a little different than, than the original audience because our church has been founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, so was theirs, but they just come from a different background, a Jewish background. And in a Jewish mindset, in a Jewish background, Moses is a really, really big deal. Why would that be? Why is Moses a really big deal in an ancient Jewish mindset? Well, Moses was the deliverer. He is, in one sense, a Messiah figure of the Old Testament. The Messiah figure in the Old Testament. Like, in the Old Testament, the Exodus, God's people being freed from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and being brought out, being delivered, being saved from that slavery, passing through the waters of the Red Sea that crashed down on God's enemies in waters of judgment. They passed through those waters of judgment to salvation. And Moses led them. He's, he's the tip of the spear there. So Moses is the, the deliverer. Um, the Bible says that Moses' communication with God was very unique. The Bible says that God spoke to him alone face to face. The Bible says that he was the most humble man on the earth. Moses was the most humble man on the earth. The Bible says that Moses was the lawgiver. And in the mind of an ancient Jewish person, the Old Testament law is the most precious thing possible. Deuteronomy 34 just paints this picture about why Moses is such a big deal. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Point, Moses was super unique. And he should be revered, right? The author of Hebrews isn't saying that Moses is trash, but he's just saying that Jesus is better. Jesus is primary. If something is primary, it doesn't mean that whatever is secondary is trash. It just means that it's secondary. Jesus is primary. Let's look at the text again. I I hope that background can help you understand the text. 
Look at verse, verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So what's, what's the author getting at with this metaphor of builders and greatness? Like it says in verse 3. Look at verse 3. So in ancient thought, the architect of a building is great. Like the person who did the design and cast the vision the architect is greater than the building that he or she would have designed. Now, I'm not sure we have this viewpoint in our modern minds. Like, um, I've had the opportunity to travel, and I think about, like, um, the magnificent centuries-old churches that I've got to see in Europe. They are absolutely breathtaking, magnificent. And when I see these old churches in, in Europe— I don't sit there and go, man, I wonder who the architect was. Like, that, doesn't, that thought never like, crosses my mind. I'm just thinking about this building is absolutely beautiful. Just in awe of the, the architecture. But I guess in the ancient world, it was different. The architect was the famous one. The building wasn't as famous. The architect was revered. So in the same way, the author of Hebrews is, is drawing upon their cultural understanding. And he's saying, Jesus is the architect. Okay? In fact, remember what he said in chapter 1? Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 and 3. He says that Jesus was there at creation. Jesus was, was the creator and it's his word of power that upholds the whole universe. Translation, Jesus is the architect. Jesus is the designer. So in that sense, he deserves the most glory. He deserves the most reverence. He deserves the most awe. And in that sense, he's worth it. He's worth it to keep going. He's the master architect. So consider how like when you when you climb a mountain and you see the beauty of like this mountain landscape or you go sit by the ocean or maybe you're just driving through the driftless region of Wisconsin and with the rolling hills and it's a beautiful day and it's just this picturesque landscape. Like creation is good, creator is better. Think of the mind that can create things like that. The house is cool, but the designer of the house is even better. So that's what the author is doing here. Fixate your mind on the designer, the creator. He's better than Moses. Moses served well, but Moses is part of creation. He's not the creator, okay? So there's no reason to leave Jesus and go back to Moses, Jesus is the best, greater than Moses. Let's keep reading. Now look at verse 5. Now Moses was, was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. As a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 
Now again, verse 5 might be a little hard to understand. Let me break it down for you. Moses was a servant. See it there? Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. So he served God's purpose in his time to receive the law, to deliver the people, to lead them in the wilderness. So that's what he means here. Faithful in God's house, like house as a metaphor for God's family, God's household, God's people, okay? He's not saying like a literal house. So the house language is, is, is a metaphor. And then it says, look at it, verse 5, to testify. So he's faithful. So what, was, what does faithfulness look like? It looked like his, look at it, verse 5, to testify, his testifying to the things that were to be spoken later. What does that mean? To testify to the things that were to be spoken later. So we learn in the New Testament that Moses wrote down and testified to all of these things that happened in his lifetime. And we learn that those things that he saw and he testified to and he wrote down all pointed to Jesus. That's what that means. It all pointed to Jesus. He was faithful to testify, to make a record of, to, to call people to remember the things that he had seen that were to be spoken of later, like we speak about them today. But even during Jesus' lifetime, this came to pass. There's a perfect example of this, of what verse 5 is talking about. At the end of, of the book of Luke, and Jesus is risen from the dead, but the disciples haven't yet put all the pieces together. And, the, and, and, and um, there's two disciples that are unnamed uh, that are walking on the road to Emmaus. And, and Luke 24 says that, that a man, they don't know it's Jesus, but it's Jesus. <clears throat> they don't recognize him for some reason. Maybe because of his resurrected body and things that we don't understand that the Bible doesn't explain. Jesus appears with them. They don't recognize him, and he just starts walking with them. And he asks them, what are you guys talking about? And, he, and they're like, haven't you heard? Like, it's kind of taken the world by storm, at least our world by storm. This Jesus figure, and all that he did, and all that he said, and he died. And, and then the Bible says that Jesus kind of made himself known to them. And the Bible says that he... In verse 27, and beginning with Moses, here it is on the screen, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's Bible speak for Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, like the scriptures that Moses wrote way back in the day, the things concerning himself. So he basically says to these guys, you have the Old Testament. You should have seen. Moses wrote this stuff down. It was all about me. It, all, it was all concerning me. So he's saying all those things that Moses wrote down and testified to, they pointed to me. And the author of Hebrews is just saying, Moses was faithful to do that. And Luke 24 is an example of that faithfulness, of the things spoken of later. This is the speaking later. You with me? So the whole point is, all this stuff is about Jesus. Moses was faithful to testify 
to all these things that pointed to Jesus. And as a result, he says, Moses is a great example of a servant. See that there? But there's a contrast between servant and son. That's the rest of the verse. But Christ, so contrast, Moses, really good. Good job, Moses. You were a servant. But the author of Hebrews says, why is Jesus greater? Because he's the son. That's the end, uh, or that's the beginning of verse, verse 6. Look at verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So he is the unique son of God. Capital S, son. So this is the final way that he just commends perseverance to these people. Don't go back to the Moses team. Stick with the Jesus team. It's worth it. Why? Because Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was great. Jesus is even better. Moses served his purpose, and that whole purpose was pointing to the reality. Jesus is the reality. So stick with the reality, okay? Fix your mind on Jesus. He's ultimate. He died for you. He lives for you. He sent his spirit to live in you. Don't give up. He's better. He's worth it. And then we'll land the plane here. He closes with this final exhortation to persevere. Look at it in verse 6. And we are his house, meaning we are his people. We are his family. We are his household. But there's a condition. If, see the if? If always should make you think of a, of a conditional statement. And we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast, persevere, keep going, don't give up. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Boasting not in ourselves, meaning boasting in the gospel. So there's a condition. You have to keep going. We have to keep going if you want to know that you're a part of the household of God. Now hear this. <clears throat> this may re, um, trigger in your mind thoughts about, like, so can I lose my salvation? How does that work? But all through the scriptures, it's clear that only those who persevere to the end will prove to be true believers. Listen to this quote from, from Dr. Al Mohler. I found this really helpful in my study this week. Hebrews, perhaps more than any other New Testament book, affirms the sufficiency of Christ and his work for our salvation. Nevertheless, warning against failing to persevere in the faith appear throughout the book. This verse introduces that major theme in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews and the rest of Scripture teach that only those who persevere in faith will be saved. And that all who have genuine faith will persevere. Believers constitute the household of God, which is to say that the church is made up of persevering believers who have authentic faith. Our works neither save us nor keep us saved. Only Christ can save us. We must hold on to our, quote, confidence and retain our, quote, boast in the gospel and in the Lord. We do not boast in ourselves and our own spiritual achievements. We boast in the cross and, the, and in the hope of resurrection. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, that's just code for um, that if you're, if you're a genuine believer, you will persevere. That you can't lose your salvation if you're a true believer. 
The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints does not mean we enter God's kingdom by faith and stay in God's kingdom by works. Instead, it means we enter God's kingdom by faith that will persevere and never fail. By faith, we confidently trust that Christ's righteousness belongs to us. He is our only boast. He is our unfailing hope. So I just want to commend to you this morning. Um, you can play mind games with yourself, wondering like, will I persevere to the end? What if I prove that I'm, that I'm not a Christian? What, what, what if I don't do what the author of Hebrews is commending to these people? I want to encourage you not to get caught up in fearing that you're going to lose your salvation. That's never an emphasis in the scriptures that you would obsess over that. I, th- I think it's the wrong question, am I going to lose my salvation? The right question is, do I want to persevere? Do I want to love Jesus? Do I want to trust him and treasure him? Like right now, where I sit today, here, here right now. If the answer to that is yes, then you're a Christian. Keep going. The author of Hebrews is just simply saying, you can't, don't think that you can ditch Jesus and return to Moses and still say that you're a Christian. Like, that's incongruous. That doesn't work. And he's pleading with them not to do that. So here's the deal. We, we don't know who will finally prove to be Christians in the end and who won't be. We don't know who will, will persevere to the end and who won't. We don't know who will show that they were never Christians in the first place by how they finish. Only God knows that. We can't know that. That's not our place. But you know who you are today. And if you love Jesus today and you want Jesus today, know that you are a Christian. And every day when you roll out of bed, you just return to that question, is Jesus my Savior? Yeah. All right, I'm going to do that today. And I'm going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it the next day. So you don't need to fixate on will I persevere or not. You just need to fixate on Jesus. Like, do I love him? Do I want him? Is the gospel true? Yes. All right, that's what I'm going to focus on. That's what I'm going to focus on. So, man, Jesus loves this prayer. I think it's found in in Mark 8 when, when the guy comes to him and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. If you're feeling weak in your faith, you just need to ask God for help. And even your willingness to ask him shows that you believe. Because if you didn't believe, you wouldn't ask him. I mean, in some ways, asking the question of perseverance, like, just shows that you care. And if you care, you probably are a Christian. Because if you didn't care, you wouldn't even be asking the question. Does that make sense? So, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus loves that kind of prayer. So, in closing, simple. Consider Jesus. What's that mean? Fixate on Jesus. He's better than anything else. Moses or anything else that we'd be tempted to fix our minds on at the expense of allegiance to King Jesus. Keep him in your view daily and know that this will keep your, keep, this will be your fuel to keep you persevering. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your promise this morning that you are better. You're better than anything we're, we're tempted to idolize or trust in. Lord, I pray that you would keep you would keep that before us. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, if there's any here this morning that are struggling with these things, to consider you, to want to keep going, to wondering if it's worth it, would you help them? Would you help them? We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.